0: We've got a big crowd tonight. I usually tell folks on Wednesday night, you know, the uh, Corinthian letter and other places talk about different parts of the body. There's the hands and the eyes and the ears and all those sorts of things. I tell folks on Wednesday night, you always see the backbone of the church. See the people who are always there, people who do the work, people who are committed. And so usually on Wednesday night, you'd find the crowd a little smaller, but I think we're pretty much where we've been all week. And so we appreciate you so much for being with us. We're going to look tonight at the third chapter of uh, 1 Peter and talk about the Peter's really finality of the conclusion of what he wants us to think about what we need and how we need to be as we uh, go through life that's unfair and suffer as we do it. But before we look at that, I want to say how much I have enjoyed being here. appreciate you all letting me come. I, some of you may not remember, but the last time or the time before, I can't remember, I was here. Sometimes, I, I, you don't know this, but I don't know how to read and Last time I was here, I had trouble with that. I was trying to teach the book, Ecclesiastes and made a terrible mess. And I thought y'all would never have me back. So I'm glad that you give me a second chance to come back and try to do a little better. But I'm so glad to be here. And, of course, Josh, I've known him for many years. And Tiffany, since they've got married, I've got to know her. And Hattie, she, she you know, when, when little children pay attention to you, one thing you see about Jesus, uh, it was those children were drawn to him. He had time for them. He saw the value and he told people, if you want to be great in this kingdom, just be like a little child and be humble and be like that. I'm always glad when children pay attention to me because I know the old folks are supposed to, but when children do, it's because they want to. And so I'm glad that young people are here and what you have done this week to encourage me. It's been a blessing to me. Folks who've had me in their home and have taken me out to places to eat, I tell folks I'm a bigger preacher because of you. I've gained some weight this week, but I thank you so much. And everybody has been so so uh, uh, overwhelmingly kind to me and said so many nice things. I, I appreciate that. I want you to know if there's anything good about me at all, uh, to God be all the glory, because I, I am not much, I'll tell you that. And I'm, I can't take credit for what I've done, because really I've just tried to steal what the Holy Spirit said. I tell folks, if I get to heaven, I hope the Holy Spirit has enough evidence to convict me of plagiarism. I hope I've stolen everything He said some way. And I've tried, in my little feeble way, to look at how the Lord did. And I've learned this by being in the third world. One of the most common questions asked in Nigeria is, can you go to heaven not knowing how to read? Most people in the third world don't know how to read, don't have a Bible. And so Jesus taught illustrated things so people could see those things and remember the picture, the illustration, so they wouldn't forget the teaching. Jesus did that quite well with people. And so I've tried to in some feeble way, to try to be that kind of a teacher. I've not done well at it, but I've tried. And so thank you for being kind to me and allowing me to come. And maybe uh, in the days to come, we might be able to do some more together. But I just appreciate Josh and, and Tiffany. And I I, I told Tiffany not I, am going to give her the, we're going to start a new award called the Preacher's Tiffany Award. She has been the greatest host that I've ever been with. She didn't make me anything I didn't want. She didn't make me get out of bed until I wanted to. And she let me sleep on the floor. Most people have a fit if you try to do that. And so she just has been a great host to me this week. And I have so enjoyed being with them and appreciate what they are and what they're doing and how much they help the kingdom. And I hope that you all will appreciate and value them because I'll tell you, they they are, Josh is way ahead of me. If he slows down, I'll catch up with him. That's how that is. And for him to get up here and talk good about me is, uh, it says a lot more about him than it does me because he's way ahead of me. I'll tell you that. Let's look at the third chapter of Peter tonight, and let's begin, as Peter begins now with verse 8, to tell us about finally. This word finally means it's the goal, the aim, or the conclusion of what people need to think about when they're going through a world where a world is causing them trouble and problems and difficulty, and everything seems many times to be unfair. What do we need, good people? How can we go through a world when we're being treated that way by a world that is governed by Satan and people have allowed him to affect their thinking and their views about everything in life. Peter says, finally be ye all of one mind. Now I wonder why that's first on the list. Have you ever thought about the value of team spirit and being able to get together on a team with people? I remember when I came and obeyed the gospel. I tell you, I didn't know but a few verses when I obeyed the gospel. But I know when I obeyed the gospel, my sins were washed away. And I was not a second-class citizen of the kingdom, even though I didn't know much, and I was ignorant about most things, and most of what I did know was wrong. And I can remember many times when I obeyed the gospel, the preacher preached, and I'd I'd go out mad because I just didn't know those things. It really upset me to realize I was so ignorant about things. And so I appreciate the fact that brethren gave me a chance, took me in, even though in my ignorance, not knowing anything, they allowed me to be a member and a citizen, to be a priest in this holy nation, and to become one of God's peculiar, one of God's own possession, they viewed me that way, and I've always treasured that. And I've always tried to remember, when I become a Christian, I get older, always look down at those new people are coming along, and be patient with them so they can grow up the same way we did. I tell about one young preacher I sent to preach in a place one time, and He'd been there two years, and one of the members called me and said, Did you send this ignora- ignoramus, this young ignorant preacher, over here to preach for us? I said, Yes, sir. You all asked me if I knew somebody, and I told him that he could go over and see if he could work with you. He said, He's an ignoramus, he doesn't know anything. He shouldn't be preaching. I said, Well, brother, let me tell you something. Just wait two more years. He'll know what you know in two more years. You'll both be a know-it-all and you'll get along just fine. But you know, we sometimes fail to realize we're not know-it-alls. We're trying to, we're trying to uh, come into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and we're all on different levels doing that. We never will be on the same page. We're trying to. That's our goal. But as soon as we back get it where we want it, some new person comes in and we've got to start again, you see. But notice when Peter says, for us to be of, be of one mind, have harmony and unity, you remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? He knew if we didn't have this, you know what it would create? The world would not believe. He knew if we would stand together and be united, sometimes our bickering and our fussing drives the world away from the Lord. So we need to, as much as is possible, as much as lies in us, be at peace with each other and to strive to be of one mind, standing together for the faith of the gospel. And then he says, not only we need to begin there, but Peter says, having compassion. This word compassion, the word compassion is two words with feeler. It's somebody who can have feelings, uh, and, and tender heartedness in some kind of way. So when somebody is suffering, uh, I don't know if you're like me, if I'm sitting somewhere in a hospital somewhere and somebody's crying across the room from me, I don't know what they're crying about, but after a while, I get my tissue out, I'm crying with them. I just don't know what about people, seeing people who suffer, people who struggle, it draws me to them. It wants me to figure out what's wrong and try to help them in some way. We need to be people that are with feelers. We feel what other people, even though sometimes we don't have any idea what they're going through. We just sense something's wrong and we have that with feeling because they're having trouble. So Peter says we're going to have to have that if we're going to do this together. And then he says uh, having compassion one for another. And then he says love as brethren. Now think about that. You know, when you think about brethren, what are you talking? We're talking about a family. Have you noticed in families? My family, we've got we've got several different kind of people. My family, I came from a, a rowdy, rough bunch, and and didn't I didn't grow up in the church. Didn't know anything until I was twenty four years old. obeyed made the gospel complete ignorant about anything about the truth. And some of my family is still struggling with drugs and other things like that. But you know what? They're my family, and when they struggle and they have trouble and problems. I try to help them if I can and try to teach them and do what I can to encourage them. They're my family. I love them because they're kin. I've I've said about my, uh, when you think about family, it's people you're kin to. One time my boys went off playing playing baseball somewhere and they knocked a ball over in the ball field and and uh, my youngest son, Matt, jumped over in the ball field to get the ball. And a bulldog come out of a doghouse and got a hold of him and started chewing on him. Well, Scott jumped over the fence, got over, got a hold of the bulldog, and pulled him off and let Matt get loose. And then the dog chewed on Scott. And they both came home and they were crying and chewed up. And I said, what happened, boys? What in the world? And they told me what happened. And Matt said, I jumped over and got the ball and the dog got me. And then Scott said, well, I jumped over and got the dog off. I said, well, Scott, why in the world did you go jump in there and get yourself to him? He said, Dad, I had to. I had to. I said, why, son? He said, Dad, we're kin. We're folk. You see, we're kin to each other. When somebody's having trouble, we've got to remember to love as a family. We're, we are brethren. We're God's people. And if we can start off with some of these fundamental things, as we work together and look at ourselves, look at yourself and see if that's the way you look at what you're doing. Then he says to be be pitiful, uh, 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 be pitiful. And I, I think some people some people are pitiful, all right. That's what they are. But this word pitiful means tender hearted. And so, what kind of a heart do you have toward people? Are you hard and callous and rough and mean with people? Are you tender hearted? Is your heart touched by problems and touched by people and touched by the sin in people's life? Peter said, this is what we need. We need to be these kind of people. And then he says, to be, the old translation says, courteous. And I'm going to tell you, that's something we lack like many a time. But uh, some translations say, of a humble spirit, or humble-minded. You know what? Humility is a valuable thing. Sometimes when there's trouble and problems in the church, Arrogance and pride and ego gets behind it, and we never can solve problems that way. We've got to be humble. I had a, a cousin that came down to the country one time, and he was always talking about how big and important he lived up in the city a little bit. He'd come down there and tell me what a big guy he was and how important he was. And I had this horse, and he wanted to ride it. And I said, well, I said, I'll let you ride it. But I said, if you get on it, you've got to hold on because I said, if you fall off or let go of him, he'll run to the next county. we we'll have to work all night trying to find him. And so he said, okay, so I throw the saddle up on there. This horse had the nature to swell up and suck air and put a saddle on him. And then he'd hold there, and you'd wait a while and then and then you'd pull the girth up on him tight, see. Well, my cousin was going to ride him. I thought, well, I throw the saddle on, and I just pulled up to where the horse caught his breath. And I thought, I'll just hold the stirrup and let my cousin get on there with it like that, you know. So he got up on there because I thought he needed to have a good taste of humility. And so I held the saddle that he got up on there. And he he kicked that horse in the side and the horse took off down to the field. Sage brush was up about that high. I saw him sliding over. He looked like a mole machine going down through there. It ripped his neck and face all to pieces. He come back to the house and told my grandmother, and she got a switch and switched me. I said, why did you switch me, Grandma? You always told me to humble yourself. Humble. And I said, he is full of pride and arrogance. She said, the Bible says, humble yourself. It doesn't say shoot somebody else out of the saddle. We want to knock somebody down when they're arrogant. No, you've got to get off your own high horse and get down. We've got to do that, brethren. We've got to be humble. That's what we need to go through a world of suffering. This is what we need. This is what God's people need to think about. If we're going to do it, this is what we need to do. And then he says, not only that, but he says, here's what we ought not to do. He says, not uh, not re- uh, rendering or repaying evil for evil, or railing or reviling or insult for insult, but, but contrary-wise, or instead, blessing. Now, why should we bless somebody who reviles us? Knowing what do we know that we that ye Uh, are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. Now why shouldn't when somebody mistreats me, somebody maybe in the church or has some problem and they say something bad about me, why should I come back and say something complimentary and bless them in some way or try to encourage them? Because I know I've been called, and I've been called when I give somebody else a blessing and talk about somebody and love my enemy and do right for people and pray for those who abuse me and misuse me. When I do that, I know God called me so that I am to receive a blessing from that. There's a blessing in you acting right, you living right, you treating people right, no matter how unfair they might be to you. That's what Peter's trying to tell us. Here's how you treat people when they treat you unfair and treat you unkindly. You bless them because you know you've been called. You, you, my friend, have been called to receive a blessing. And he says this then, listen to this statement. Verse 10, for in for he that will love life... And see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Now this is a quote from Psalm 34 and verse 12. Have you read that psalm where David there, a picture where he went to see Abimelech and Abimelech... Uh, said to him, well, we know that you, uh, that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousand. He knew that there was going to be some strife because that was going to get around. And so David acted a little like he was mad. And, and Abimelech sent him away and David went away. And David wrote this psalm showing how he put his confidence in God and God delivered him from everything. And so he says, what should we do in our situation? We need to refrain our tongue from evil. One of the greatest problems we've got in the kingdom of God is people's tongues. We just let our tongue run loose. And we say things ought not to be said, and we say things in the wrong way. And if we could ever learn to get control of our tongue, James says, let me tell you, when you can control that, you've got the whole thing in control. That's usually the last thing to get a grip on. And so he says, let's make sure we don't let our tongue rattle, and, and our lips say something, we'll speak some kind of guile, uh, ill will about somebody. And the, and the psalmist goes on to say, let him eschew, or avoid evil, or turn from evil, and do good, let him seek peace, and and ensue it. Here's a picture of somebody chasing after and trying to capture peace and pursuing it. And so, what's the writer trying to say about that? We all need to be in pursuit of that. Uh, there was a lady who uh, had some health problems, and she was a member of a church. And she was always seemingly at the odds about something. She was always upset. Some she was finding some issue to always pick some problem. Never could seem to get to get along with brethren and. Well, she went in the hospital with some heart trouble, and one of the elders went, old elder couldn't hear very well. He went and said, How are you doing, sister? And she said, Oh, I'm doing okay. They found out what's wrong with me, what wrong with me. They checked my heart and they're going to put a pacemaker inside of me. Well, the old elder, he was hard of hearing. He said, Oh, God bless them. They figured you out good. I'm so glad. I'll go back and tell the church. Well, he went back on Wednesday night. He got out and said, Well, sister so-and-so's in the hospital, and they checked her out, and they sure found out what was wrong with her. They're going to put a pacemaker inside of her. Blessed are the peacemakers, not lovers. Peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We think we've got to turn the boat upside down sometimes. Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, it's hard enough to get along. And when somebody's not trying to make peace and work the peace, pursue peace and seek it, you see what we need? Can you see what Peter's trying to tell us? How are we going to get through this world? Living in a world that turned upside down, we need each other and we need to behave and treat each other right and be people who will pursue and seek after peace. And then Peter says to us something else that's very interesting. He says, here's the reason why for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Do you know what the Lord's doing right now? He's watching us. The Lord's looking to see And so he's watching to see what we're doing. The Lord's eyes are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. He's listening to us when we pray, and we've got trouble and problems. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. He's opposed to people who do what is wrong. And so let's remember that. The Lord is in control. The Lord's sovereign. He's watching. He knows. He hears what's going on. Don't think you're going to pull it off. If we're doing something other than what the Lord wants, we better wake up and get on track quick, because he's noticing, he's taking note of it, and he's listening. And so let's make sure we don't do anything that will create problems for the people of God. This royal priesthoods, peculiar people, holy nation, that's who we are. And Peter says to us, not only that, but he goes on to say in verse 14, But if any suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah 8 and verses 14, 12 through 14. And you remember what God told Isaiah? God told Isaiah, don't you be afraid. And when, when those people say there's a controversy or a conspiracy, don't you say what they say. The people say, there's some big stir, some controversy. Isaiah, don't you get involved in it. And don't you worry about their worries. Don't you fear what they fear. When people get all wound up, you know, I've noticed as long as I've been a Christian, there's always some wave of something going through the church, going across the country. Some new idea, some new thing waves across and it just goes across and people get their hands all up in the air and get all upset and wonder, what are we going to do? Just keep reading your Bible, that's all. And don't let controversy, don't let conspiracy and problems disturb you. You just put your confidence in God. And that's what Isaiah is told to do, to trust in the Lord and to wait on Him. I went to a restaurant one time the church in Madison after, I think it was 30 years, they bought my wife and I a place to go to stay in this real nice restaurant, and I had a hotel place in Louisville. I'd never been to such a place in all my life. I felt so uncomfortable went in this big uh, restaurant area and there was a man standing by the wall and they brought me a glass of water and set on my table. I picked it up and took a sip out of it and that old boy come over there with a the pitcher, poured it back up to the full and went back over, laid the towel and stood there just watching me. I was so nervous I couldn't eat my dinner. He stand standing there, he was waiting on me. Waiting on me to take a sip of water. He just kept waiting. That's his job, to stand there and wait. If we could learn to wait on the Lord, Put your trust in Him. He's going to take care of it. We want to get in a hurry. We want everything to be done in our timeline, and our way, in the way we want it done. If it don't, old buddy, we're going to turn the boat over. Wait on the Lord to do it. Let the Lord do His part. That's what Isaiah is learning here and what, what, what Peter's telling us that Isaiah had learned from God. That's what this quote is from. And so he says, you know what Isaiah goes on to say? Don't you worry. Don't be afraid. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Now what's that mean? That means you put a place in your heart special that God has set apart in your heart and you keep Him right in the middle of your heart and when you get the Lord there, you be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the hope Then you with meekness and fear. So don't do it with arrogance. Don't try to slap people around and rough them up. You put the Lord in your heart and when somebody asks you a defense, you tell them why this hope is you have in your heart and you do it, my friend, with meekness, humility, humility, And gentleness, that's what you do. That's the way you answer people. Sometimes we rough people up and wonder why they don't. We beat them all to pieces and wonder why they don't want to obey the gospel. Take a sword and cut them into pieces, you know. So I wonder why they didn't obey the gospel. Well, we tore them all to pieces. People, we're dealing with people. Remember that. Don't get people's defenses up. Get them to thinking about the Lord. So you set the Lord apart in your heart. And then he says in verse 16, having a good conscience. The word conscience means what you know within yourself. So having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as an evildoer. Now listen to this. This is the third reason for the benefit of suffering. Peter, each chapter, puts out a reason why suffering is beneficial. Here's the third reason. Having a good conscience conscience that whereas uh, they speak evil of you as an evildoer, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse you by your good conversation in Christ. You know when you're most influential in the world? When somebody accuses you of something, and then they watch you live, and they watch how you respond, and they watch what you do, and your conduct outlives what they say about you, and they become ashamed of what they said about you. That's how you win that. You outlive it, you see. You live the right kind of life in a world that says bad things about you. Doesn't matter whether they're in the church or out, that's what you do. And so Peter says, not only that, but listen to this in verse 17. He says, "For uh, for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for uh, that ye suffer for e- for well doing than for evil doing." And notice, Peter says, let me tell you what what you need to understand about this: it's better off if we're suffering. If we're going to suffer, we know we're going to suffer, but let's make sure we suffer for doing good. Uh, Sometimes we bring a lot on ourselves. We suffer because we we do we bring it on ourselves. The way we act, the way we do, the way we treat people, we bring a flood of trouble to ourselves. If we're going to love life and see good days, and we're going to bless other people and have a good life, let's understand it's better. It's better to suffer. And I notice verse eighteen says something great about this. It says, "For Christ also." So how, why should we see that's better? Christ also hath once suffered for sin the just, that's Jesus, for the unjust, that's us, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the Spirit. Now notice, why did Jesus do what He did? Why did He suffer the way He did and not respond and not not retaliate against people? Because He knew if I do that, if I they raise me up on the cross and I raise my hands out and they crucify me and I don't spit and, and talk... Uh, uh, blasphemy to them and, and get even with them in some way, they will know by me seeing how much I love them, that will have an impact on their heart and they'll change as a result of it. Jesus set an example for us. He suffered, you see. It's better that we do what Jesus did. He set the standard for us. So when we're mistreated and we suffer, we know we can bring other people to God if we'll behave ourselves. Don't try to defend yourself. I tell the elders all the time in Madison, sometimes people will we don't tell them everything we know because that would just destroy a lot of people's lives. And they they don't understand why we do we do it and the reason why we do things. And I tell them, listen, we don't have to defend ourselves. What people think about us does not matter. What matters is we're in the business of trying to save souls. We, we need to love souls and be leaders of souls and watch out for souls and no matter what people say about and i've said many times jesus when they said he had a devil and he had a, was mad he didn't jump up at attention to defend himself but when they started talking bad about his father that's when jesus stood up and sometimes we want to stand up for ourselves and defend ourselves i don't try to defend myself i've learned a long time ago uh, people say things about you you call them try to you can't get the truth out of them you can't unravel all that You just let God take care of it. You see that what you may do is bring people to Christ. Bring people to God by suffering for what is right. And notice, he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now notice what else happened in the Spirit. But by which also, he, uh, he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now notice, Jesus went somewhere in the Spirit and preached to people that are now in prison. They are in prison now, in those chains of darkness, waiting the day of judgment. But when did they do that? When did he go preach to them in the Spirit? He says, verse 20, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Here was God waiting for people to repent and change. And these men were being preached to in Noah's day. 2 Peter 2, verse 5 says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And in 1 Peter 1, verse, verse 11, you remember what we said about those prophets of old who searched what and what manner of time? The Spirit of Christ which was in them they signify. Jesus was in these prophets. He was in Noah. He was preaching in the Spirit in those days, preaching to those very people uh, who were now in prison. And he says then also, in verse 20, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long servant of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. Now think about this. This next verse says, uh, the like figure one two baptism also now save us. Is not the putting away the filth of the flesh. But an answer to a good conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I, I talked to a good friend of mine, he's a preacher in where I am. And uh, he said, now we know that when you talk about baptism in the water, it, uh, baptism in many places, it just can't be talking about water baptism. And I said, well, what about right here, you know? It's always talking here about water. He said, yeah, but you know, that's just kind of a figure. And really baptism doesn't save us. I said, well, the Bible says that it does. And I, he said, well, if we do that, that means something externally saves you or something you do saves you. I said, no. I said, when Noah built the ark, the ark didn't save him. He said, what do you mean? I said, the water saved him. If he built an ark and there was no flood, there wouldn't have been any salvation and there wouldn't have been any judgment. The water raised the ark and the water divided the to save from the lost. It was the water that did it. It wasn't the ark that did it. And here we see a picture of baptism. What separates the saved from the lost? is <clears throat> people who are baptized. People who have been baptized notice it's not to put away the filth of flesh. I think I mentioned to you when I obeyed the gospel. I, I knew what was going to happen. I would understood what the Bible said. And I was thinking when I get in that battery, they better have some Lysol and I don't know what all else you put in there, some kind of battery acid and car acids and all kind of things, because I'm going to be a terrible sinner and the stuff's going to bubble over and run all over the place. Well, you know, I, I was ignorant to understand the fact that what had to happen was God was operating on my heart. He was cutting away the body of sin. It was something happening internally, not something external. There was nothing in the water that I needed to wash something off the external part of who I was. It was an internal conscience to know with myself. And to realize that my sins, I knew my sins were going to be washed away. And so here Peter helps us to understand when we do what God says... And this happens, notice, according uh, toward uh, toward God by the resurrection of Jesus. When you think about the fact that you go down in the water grave of baptism, Romans, the sixth chapter shows, you know, those who were buried in the water grave of baptism, they're buried into Christ's death. Here's somebody who dies, and that means they repent, change their mind. They go in the water grave. When you have a death, you know what you need? You need a burial. They go into water river baptism and they're buried. Why are they buried? They're buried into the death of Christ. Why into the death? Because that's where his blood was shed. Where can you contact the blood? You can't go back to the cross Let so that drip on you. It wouldn't do you any good. God says you've got to go down in the watery tomb and be buried into the death of Christ. And then you're raised up, and you're raised up to a new life. Here's a new birth. And then verse 5 says, And we, as we are united together, planned together with him in the likeness of death, so we'd be in the resurrection of of life. And so here's the picture of a new birth coming on somebody, and then they're being united together. That's the word and the phrase for a marriage, being joined together. So you see all those things in there, a death, a burial, a resurrection, a new life, and a marriage, all because somebody is baptized in a watery grave. And what Peter helps us to see finally, in verse 21 is that this is where the conscience is responded to. In verse 22 says, Who is gone into heaven, and on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Here's the picture of victory. Jesus dying, suffering, and doing what he did for us, so that when he went back into the heavens, how did God view that? God took him home to glory. And set him on his right hand on the throne and powers and authorities. Everything now is under his power, under his authority. Jesus has all authority. My friend, what you need to recognize is you need to come with a humble heart tonight. And see, if you want to get through this world of suffering and unfairness, I, I used to get so tickled with my, my boys when they were younger. How many times my oldest son, John, he was two years older than, than Scott. And when I would, uh, they would do something that was wrong. <clears throat> I would I would give John maybe five licks for what happened. I'd give Scott three. And John would say, well, Dad, how come you give me uh, more licks than you gave Scott? He said, that's not fair. I said, son, get on the bus. Life isn't fair. But I said, listen to me. I'll give you three licks, and you can't go across the street anymore. you got to stay in the backyard with Scott. See, Scott's younger than you, and you've got more responsibility, and you know more, so there's more demanded of you. But I said, let me tell you, whether you learn that or not, life is going to be unfair. That's, what, that's the way life is. And so what do we need, good people? We need to know how to be a group of family of God's people who stand together and love each other and put up with each other and try as best we can to tolerate one another and to overlook our weaknesses until we all can grow up and get on the same page. That's what we need. Peter said, let me tell you, that's what you need to think about. And when you make up your mind, you're going to be that kind of a person and become a part of the church here. What you'll find out is, you'll be a blessing to everybody. But if you be different than that, you'll be a curse to the people of God as long as you live, and you'll never get over it. I've seen people like that, and they just they like they like that little uh, fell in the cartoons who walks everywhere, he goes a cloud, just travels over him everywhere he goes, going to rain everywhere he goes. Some people just got a storm blowing a little bit all the time. We need to stand together, love each other, be a family, and be courteous and kind, long suffering with one another. That's what God has done for me. If God can do that for me, I'm going to tell you, whatever sin you commit against me will just be a flea bite compared to what I've done to God. And God has been patient with me and loved me. And I'm going to love His family. And I don't care what it takes. I'm going to keep on doing those sorts of things. If you're here tonight and need to respond to the gospel in any way, we want you to come with a desire to be that kind of a person. And to start off with this attitude that will help you to learn and grow and be patient with other people. You can come tonight with a confession, you believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, have your sins washed away in baptism, come up out of the water grave of baptism, and become committed to being a an disophagus and begin to walk in the light as you take each step every day. When you make a misstep and step off in the dark, you step back on the road and you confess that you're wrong. And you start doing right again. That's the way it works. If you're here tonight, need to respond anyway once you come. We'll sing the song to encourage you.